in that sense, when I see the misogyny in my family, I know who you are. <laughs> and I know what you've done. <laughs> Calling people out. <laughs> hey guys, this is Omni Borna. And Myra. Welcome to the Hidden Coconuts Podcast. The show that dives deep into the lives of us coconuts. Brown on the outside, white on the inside. Or in other words, those of us who identify as both South Asian and North American, juggling two identities, contemplating how they coexist. If you empathize or you are just in the neighborhood, stick around and let's get cracking our inner coconuts. Hey, Myra. Hey, Aggie. <laughs> so recently I had kind of like this revelation, if you could call it that. And I thought like it pertains to this podcast really well. And I really wanted to like share it and see if anybody else might relate to it as well. Yeah, I'm interested. So basically, I've been taking these abnormal psychology and cross-cultural psychology courses. And I love it. I'm learning so much and I can apply so much to these podcast episodes as well. But cross-cultural psychology is like one of those things where Everything you've learned about psychology, everything you've learned about abnormal psychology, your cognition and everything, it's basically you have to take it all and then like completely forget about it and come into a different environment or different culture with a blank slate because it won't like apply to everything because psychology is basically like a Western concept and it was founded and like researched heavily in the Western societies, but it doesn't even like apply to every other culture there is. So within psychology, there's a lot of ethnocentrism that people should be aware of. I actually never thought of that before, but now that you're mentioning it, it makes sense that there's just different ways to approach it, and you're right. Psychology and the research done about people is done very differently, if at all, in other places. Yeah, which brings me back to like my main topic of interest. I've had social anxiety for as long as I can remember. Going back to my early teens and tween years, I've always like had this fear of being judged by other people or just social environments kind of overwhelm me sometimes to the point where I just freeze in the middle of a mall because it's so many stimulants I cannot take it. So there's a biological component to it as well as a social component. So it's a kind of like a gradient where most of it is based on your genetics and what you inherit, but that genetic component is shaped by your environment. So it's like a gene and environment interaction that determines how much of something you have. And I was wondering how I could have even inherited the social anxiety because my dad was very outgoing and he was like a really people person in the elevator. He'd just start talking to random strangers. But my mom's a lot more like socially reserved. And though she doesn't have social anxiety, she's more introverted, just prefers like a smaller circle. But like this is my hypothesis, is like our environments might have shaped the way South Asian children and families are brought up and maintained might be a reason why social anxiety might be like in my head. Because statistically, East Asians and South Asians in general, they are more likely to have social anxiety, but less likely to diagnose it because of these cultural barriers. So nature versus nurture and how like typically like genetically wise, social anxiety isn't really common but it's the way that we're brought up. So what I'm trying to say through all these normal jumble of thoughts is that growing up, I don't know if you've experienced this as well, but until six years old, I grew up in Bangladesh. So I had a good chunk of time to adapt to Bangladeshi ways of being their norms and values and morals and stuff. And something that parents, grandparents, like any caretakers love to do to discipline their children is say stuff like, 
oh, you better eat this or I'll tell your teacher that you're not eating or you're not behaving. Or you better do this or I'll tell somebody you admire that you're not as good or you're not being good. You better be a good child. Do you know what I mean? Emotional blackmail strikes again. <laughs> yeah, so basically when they want to like make us do something or eat something or behave some way, it always like has some sort of like warning attached to it. Like it's kind of not exactly a punishment, not exactly a reinforcement. It's something in the middle where you have to behave a certain way or else you're not seen good as a good child. Yes, exactly. And it's a very collectivist thing or like a collectivist society thing because Eastern societies or like South Asian societies are generically known as collectivist, meaning they value community over individual rights, basically. Mm -hmm. So I think just this idea of what will people think if I am not a good child? What will people think if me, a five-year-old me, has a tantrum like every other five-year-old? Like, what will people think? Oh my gosh, they think like I'm not that good of a child anymore. You outgrow it as you grow up and you realize that's just childish. That's just silly talk to make me do stuff. But it kind of really got engraved in my mind to the point where it's just become a part of me where people cannot find out that I make mistakes as well or I also have a short temper and I lose it sometimes. So yeah, I'm always like paranoid. People are going to judge me for every move I make. And I wonder if that's a reason why I have social anxiety is because these parenting strategies that might have worked in a South Asian collectivist culture, but not necessarily in an individualistic, more autonomy-based culture like Canada. Yeah, I think you hit several great points there. I get it because I have some influence as well with that culture. And it's literally structured around the saying what will people think and when you try to live like that it's easy to sometimes forget that you know as humans we're not supposed to be perfect so why do we expect it from each other and you were touching on this earlier like you're saying you're scared of making mistakes and just hearing that like it's it just makes me a bit upset i'm also like that and i know that i shouldn't be but at the same time it's because of this kind of ideal that even though we are not programmed to be perfect, we're still expected to try. Right. And going back to like the cross-cultural psychology aspect, it might work in a collectivist society, but that doesn't mean it will work in this environment. And I think that's kind of where I clash as well, because I'm bringing all these values or like these upbringing strategies from a collectivist society where it's held in a different manner. So when I'm applying it here and I'm like worried about all these little things and if people are noticing if I'm walking with a pigeon toe or if I'm breathing too heavily, people are in their own heads. Every other person is thinking the same thing instead of like wondering what the other person is doing. In an individualistic society, everyone's just their self. Like there's not that pressure that you have to be a certain way, but they want to make sure that the way they are perceived as an individual is still good. There's like this heavy emphasis on the idea here that, oh, I did that. Oh, I'm just being me. I'm just being me and doing me like you do use kind of stuff. Do you think I'm being too complicated? I think that you have a capacity to understand that maybe I don't, but you're welcome to go like as far as you want. And I'll just, I'll try. I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) Let me rephrase this then. Countries like Canada and America and European countries recently as a recent, they value autonomy. Like you have to do your own thing. You have to fight for yourself. You know, like no one's going to do it for you. 
which is why it's kind of like your own thing. You don't take criticism from anyone and they're like, eh, whatever, I'll do my own thing. But in other countries like East Asian countries like China, Japan, and South Asian countries like Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, they value collectivistic like, in general. Like you can't like put it into like two boxes. Mm-hmm. It's more like a gradient, but in general, they're known for being like a more tight-knit community. You have to rely on other people before yourself. You have to think about the community's reputation. And in that sense, the what will people think thing makes sense. But when you apply those kind of values to North America, like when you bring those values here, you realize they don't hold that same power because everybody's kind of in their own minds here. They're all caught up in their own bubbles and their own stuff. So no one's going to take a pause to see if you're walking properly or like breathing properly or not. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because this community is not dependent on like an image of what everyone looks like. That makes sense. Yeah, and I can kind of relate to that. So for the amount of time of my life, my parents were married. Their marriage wasn't like the best in the world. There were a lot of downs and a few ups. But I grew up among that. That's all I saw was that my parents had like a rough relationship going on. But no matter how it was behind closed doors, my dad being this outgoing person and like, oh my gosh, what's the English word for it? (laughs) He was either a newspaper editor or like a a journalist. So a lot of people knew him. So no matter what happened behind closed doors, we had to like create this perfect like family kind of thing going on. So that's kind of also a thing that stuck to my mind where nobody can know our problems. You have to like keep it to yourself. Yeah, like ideal. Yeah. And it's weird. Every family, every society in South Asian communities are trying to do that. Even here, the more Bangladeshi people get here, the more like they become established. They make groups, not because they get along. It's more like who has the most money or who has the most property? Like how many houses do you have? And based on that, that's how they become friends. Like all these things, like where you have to like you wish you were us kind of mind. It just so much pressure. You know what I mean? For sure. And I know just in general, there's such comparative kind of mindset. You know, everyone wants to be better than the others. Especially growing up, we would always be compared to like our parents' friends' kids. Like, did you see that person? They got a 98 and you got a 90. It's just we're always seen in comparison to others, which really impedes our ability to see our successes and to value what we do because it's always in terms of what did the other person do. The pressure and this like idea of well-being and mental health isn't seen in the same light in our countries of origin either because mental health is either still being studied or still not approached in a westernized way. And as a result, they don't see it the same way we do. And conclusively, we might sometimes be seen as like an outcast in the family or like a black sheep in the family because we don't think the same way as our parents. And another reason this is, is because individualist societies, they emphasize like you have to speak your mind, you have to do all these CBT and like think about yourself, have all this self-awareness, whereas South Asian cultures emphasize other awareness. Like, what are other people thinking? Like, how are our actions going to affect other people like in our group? And because of that, what ends up happening is all the psychological symptoms become somatized. So they go to different parts of your body, which is why many South Asians have like higher chances of diabetes or high blood pressure, higher chances of backaches. Not because like there's something wrong with like your body, but the effects of your mental well-being are being expressed through your body. 
amidst all of this, like how does all of this information pertain to our coconut? Because we're all kind of caught up between a rock and a hard place. Because it's weird. You grew up or like you're seeing these certain ideals and values at home or back with your family. But when you go out into the environment, it's like completely different. You end up making an identity in the middle, but you feel like you need to fit in. You can't really fit in with either one because people here, they see you as you're brown. They already have like these stereotypes and prejudice stuff associated with your race. So they'll never completely 100% accept you as their own, even though like with inside, all your morals and values relate to them. And at the same time, the people you look like, you will never be able to mesh with them because you know like their values aren't the same as yours. You know what I mean? Yes, you grew up in an entirely different place. You're exposed to the different values and the different beliefs and you tend to internalize them. That's just normal. So I get that distance that it creates. And then at the same time, it's one feature, literally just the color of our skins. That's the most evident that people can take to determine that we're quote unquote others. And that's what creates that distance. So it's a place of alienation to be a coconut. Earlier, you were talking about mental health as well. And that's a pretty interesting topic because of the different views that these societies have on mental health and mental illness. A long time ago, like this wouldn't have been even a thing in South Asian cultures. Even today, people don't really recognize that it's a problem, that you need to seek help for it. And then if you do tell them, it has like the stigma around it. And I know that exists in Canadian culture, but brown culture is so much worse. The concept of expressing yourself and speaking your mind is a very Western concept. And it's slowly starting to seep into other cultures. But overall, it's just finding like a place for yourself in the middle. Those individualistic and collectivistic, those are like two extreme ends and there's no set on dichotomy. Even like in European cultures up until recently, like having some sort of like a mental ailment meant you were possessed by a demon and you needed an exorcism. Yes. Even with disability in general, the past few was like these people needed to be separated. They needed to die. They needed to be put down. They were basically treated like non-humans. It's an interesting concept to think about. And in some other cultures, people with disabilities or people who are born different are basically like worshipped as like a god or offspring or like some sort of like a contribution from the gods. So like they need to be worshipped and like prayed and like you have people go to them for like blessings and stuff, you know? Oh, wow. I haven't heard that one. I've heard that people with disabilities, they're seen as something like a gift from God, you know, something that they have to overcome like a test. But I haven't heard that one, which is really interesting. Yeah, it depends on the culture, it depends on the society, which brings me back to my first point where cross-cultural psychology is basically you have to go into each culture with an open mind without your past biases. And that's also a very common thing people are doing in therapies. Therapists facing multicultural patients or culture different from theirs, they have to put aside all their cultural biases, beliefs, and morals to go in with a blank canvas to be able to help their patient the way they need to be. It's like all these existing ideas, but at the end of the day, we only know so little because the world is big. There's so, so much that exists outside of it. Even therapy like varies based on culture. Like here, it's all about like CBT, self-awareness, and there's a very heavy emphasis on like something's wrong with your life. It's probably your parents' fault, or it's probably because of your relationship with your parents. But in like East Asian therapies, there's like this one therapy called Nikon therapy in Japan, 
instead of blaming it on your parents, they make you sit down and think about how much indebted you are to your parents, like all they've done and how you've, you'll never be able to repay them back. So you should be thankful for all you've done. Oh, wow. Sorry. And that's therapy? <laughs> Yeah, so like you have to think about that's how many people in those cultures they feel comforted. So they don't want to like bother other people with their own personal issues with the fear that their relationships will be jeopardized because they revealed so much about themselves. So instead of like talking to other people, they just think that they have these good relationships with other people. They have like these people they're supportive, these people who technically they're indebted to, but they don't want anything return of their kindness. So thinking about those things for people with that kind of mindset and ethics of community, that's what helps them. Wow, that's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And I think that's a very good example that shows just how different these approaches are. And there's not necessarily one that's right. You know, it works for different people in different situations. And here, as you were saying earlier, there's CBT. And even just like medicalization, like we're so focused on the idea of trying to cure or trying to treat people that have mental illnesses and things like that, trying to get rid of it because it's a problem within the individual that's impairing them. But as I've been learning through my disability studies minor, there's so many different ways to look at it. Maybe it's not the person that's disabled, but the society that's disabling. It's the things around us that are causing us problems, that are making us feel a certain way. So it's critical to have this kind of information and knowledge and just knowing that maybe there's not a certain way that things have to be approached. The things that we know aren't the only existing ideas out there. So we, we have to have an open mind. Jumping off of what you said, it's kind of unrelated, but I thought I'd share it because I thought it was really interesting. The idea of the school system in general, we have to go in, sit in class, listen to the teacher, and then do your work. It's, in a sense, biologically speaking, more targeted towards females, or like biological females, because boys genetically, biologically speaking, they are more outgoing. They are wired to be more aggressive and playing in general, whereas girls are biologically more calm, reserved, passive. Mm -hmm. So because of that, girls are better. And especially now where girls are being given more educational opportunities, this is a big reason why females are getting more university degrees. That's why the male population for college degrees and post-secondary degrees and high school degrees, they're decreasing. Because boys cannot handle having to sit down for an extended period of time. Where the teacher is reprimanding the child for not sitting properly and not doing their work. It's not their fault. They're like a kid. That's how they're programmed to be. So you're kind of forcing them out of their natural habitat. And that's how a lot more males end up dropping out or like not pursuing a post-secondary degree, especially in today's day and age. Yeah, and it makes me wonder how we got here. Like if we know this stuff, if we know that people among us have difficulty sitting still or they require more movement, how did we design a classroom that was so like strict where we're like bound to chairs? I just don't understand. And as somebody who wants to be a teacher themselves, like I'm just realizing there's so many ways that you can go about things like this, right? Teaching is not something that happens only in a classroom setting. It happens everywhere. Heck, it happens on this podcast, I would think. <laughs> so why can't we just be a little more flexible? What's the harm? Yeah, the school system's weird. That's like a completely different topic I could yep. probably go into in a different episode because I have a whole lot of stuff to say about standardized tests and general intelligence. Yes. I'll save that for later, but 
Going back to like what we were talking about families, because I think there's a lot of stuff that can be said about what we said before, but now. (laughs) (laughs) Family, 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 family. I am who I am because of my family. Whether that be for the better or the worse, that I'll let people choose. Even though I grew up pretty secluded from the rest of my family, it was only my parents and my brother. I give a lot of credit to those people for who I am today. And I've been feeling pretty disconnected from the rest of my family because they're on the other side of the world in Pakistan. So recently, my dad actually went to my cousin's wedding in Pakistan. He went to like Italy, went to Pakistan, Switzerland without me. I was so jealous. But it's like the second major wedding to happen on my dad's side of the family. So he went and man, it's incredible how insignificant I feel to my extended family yet they care so much about me. They remember me and everything. Put my name on the wedding card for the weird traditions they have. They all sent me gifts. They all were like, man, I wish you were here. And I'm like, wow, I try so hard to feel like I belong in this society. But I've never been treated with that much kindness and that much respect, like from anyone. You know what I mean? Dude, yes. Uh, I can relate to you, but more in my mom's side of the family. I grew up with them, and those are the people I trusted with my life. It's hard to pinpoint what I've experienced myself and what I've actually seen. And because of what I've seen, I've kind of adapted as the norm. So here, I just see the way people communicate with each other and the way people prioritize certain stuff. And that's become like the norm for me. And in that sense, I also understand the feeling of feeling insignificant among your family because their entire love language is different, you know? Yeah, The way they express affection, the way they express that you belong is not the same as it is here. It's like a, it's a weird place for us because we're expecting to be treated like a certain way. We're like going towards something when in the background, there's already something else happening for us. Right. And it's like a communication barrier. In relation to my dad's family, I have very little contact with my dad's family because of all the misogyny and Bangladesh. Most of my dad's family cut ties with my mom after they realized that she divorced him. So it's like, how dare she do that? And it's like a major, major layer of misogyny. And I only have a couple of contacts left from my dad's family as a result. When I was younger, I didn't think that there's so much beef in my family. Like the drama was pretty low key. And then boom, I just I wake up one day and it's like, there's so much like poop. I idolized my family to like, no ends like everyone had their own pedestal everyone had like this monument in my head for like certain things but the older I got especially after psychology maybe like it's just me being complicated but I sit around and I'm like well actually hold on wait one second like I love my family I think they're pretty cool and each of them are unique but after a point you just take a step back and you're like just hold on hold your horses a little bit yeah yeah for sure I think As a child, I was just kind of oblivious, like there's little things happening, but they didn't mean much to me. And then you kind of realize that like for people who live there and see each other every day, like it's actually, it becomes an issue and then things just escalate and escalate. And then all of a sudden you have like this, this huge thing that happens and then family members are cut off from each other, like sisters from each other and therefore families and therefore aunts and uncles. And it creates this whole ripple effect. And after that, things are just never the same. And it's just weird. I'm going to throw in a little bit of cross-cultural stuff in here. So there's this thing called relational mobility, as in like, how free are you to make new relationships? Mm -hmm. So basically, 
people in Canada, they have high relational mobility because they choose who they want to be friends with, who they want to chat with, who they want to go out with. And if they don't like somebody, they'll ghost you. They'll say, we're not compatible. You have a lot more freedom to like pick and choose who your people are. Yeah. But in tight-knit societies like Bangladesh and Pakistan, it's more like low relational mobility because once you're in a group, it's like an embedded like mesh of networks. You can't just cut ties with people because it's not your choice. It's not only your choice to cut ties. And as a result, people here have a lot less quote-unquote enemies because you don't have like that kind of obligation to stick with anyone. Whereas in South Asia, it's because of their low relational mobility, they end up having more quote-unquote enemies within their close groups because they can't exactly just like cut the ties. Exactly. It's like Jenga. Like you take one block <laughs> out, either the whole thing falls apart or you're sick. That's a good one. That's a good analogy. That's just how it works. And I don't want to get into the actual like drama that happened because I don't think my family would appreciate me talking about that. But a lot of phone conversations too. Okay, so something happens in my mom's hometown. She gets a call from her her siblings saying like, hey, like this is what happened. Meanwhile, the other person who was, I guess, accused of having done something, they tell other people lies. Okay, so those lies spread. And then before you know it, the head of the family knows about the lies because his siblings told him that. And this is like the higher generation. So then mom decides to clarify, hey, no, like this is not what happened. This is actually what happened. Mom is accused of lying (laughs) by by her superior, a.k.a. father-in-law. It's hard to be open because now he's like, oh, so you're accusing my siblings of lying then. Okay. And things eventually got cleared up, but it's just, it's crazy. See, like, it's, it's politics, you know? So much politics. And people love to, like, switch sides. You know, like, they're temperamental. They're not the same every day. So if I also use, like, my mom as an example, a relative comes to my mom and complains about someone. My mom confronts whoever they were complaining about and tries to like, fix things and make amends. The next day, that said relative who came to my mom to complain confronts my mom saying, how dare you get involved? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, some, that, that's pretty common as well. Like, people are temperamental. Oh, boy. <laughs> so like- even whether you help or not, you're still like, going to be caught under the bus. Right. Oh. Yeah, and... Amidst all of this, the kids are kind of always there. Whether you're young or you're 20, you're there, you're listening. And even if you're, when you're really young and you don't know what's going on, the unconscious like effects of it, they affect you. And they affect you when you grow up. And after a certain age, like you do like get a gist of it. It's not like you're, a 10-year-old is completely clueless to what's going on. They're influenced by what they see and their behaviors are also shaped accordingly. So to like say that, oh, she's a child, she doesn't know what's happening. It doesn't mean like they're not seeing you a certain way. Like they're creating a version of you in their head based on what they hear, what they see, no matter how old they are. If that makes sense. Yeah, like they're exposed to it and it's going to affect them. And even if people don't say outright, I feel like there's always just this tension in the room that is just there. You know, you might not know what's happening, but you know something's wrong. Yeah, which... Again, I'm going to reiterate back to an earlier topic of like mental health. Just the idea of children and mental health 
our families or like our countries of origin, they just cannot see the two together. Like it took me studying psychology for my mom to acknowledge and realize, though she has her own history with mental health, it never crossed her mind that children can also have depression or children can also have anxiety. Children are not seen as conscious beings to an extent. Right. I remember you talking about this in another episode, but it's like, again, like what can a child have to be depressed about kind of thing? Yeah. And even I think as we grow older, we just look at children and we're like, oh, you're just a child or like, what do you know? But it's really interesting how how every little thing children see, and especially in terms of parents, like everything a parent does implicitly or explicitly will affect their child somehow, some way, somewhere. I find it kind of ironic how we think that kids aren't affected when in fact those are the very years when they're like the most exposed to stuff, right? Every little experience and encounter they have goes towards their development, both mentally, intellectually, socially. In that sense, when I see the misogyny in my family, I know who you are (laughs) and I know what you've done. (laughs) Calling people out. (laughs) I don't want to, but it's like things can be so toxic. Especially when you go through a divorce in like a country like Bangladesh. Yeah, yeah. No. And when the female takes initiative to take a divorce, oof, like, you better watch it. Even among like the Bangladeshi community in London, like my mom wasn't like accepted among them for like a couple years because before my dad left, people sided with him basically. So she was always looking like, the bad guy. Amidst all of this, the aunties and uncles here, they're talking about my mom and like talking about all these things. But me being a 10-year-old, I'm sitting there, I'm listening, I see how people react. So I also have my idea of people, you know? Whatever's happening with her, I'm always like a side character. Like, I'm there, hi, hey, how's it going? (laughs) So everyone, even like the aunties and uncles I see today, they're saying all these things, or maybe they might be complimenting me, being nice with my mom. But in the back of my head, I know what they said 10 years ago. Like, I know what you did. It doesn't escape. Time doesn't erase what happened. Yeah, and like the family members who are all of a sudden 10 years later trying to rekindle with me saying, you, I never forgot about you. You're always in my heart. Where were you 10 years ago? Like, why now all of a sudden, you know? Yeah, I feel like one of the things about family is that it's part of their role to be there even when times aren't great, to be there with the problems, you know, to get us through, not like only when things are in their favor. Yes. Yeah, so when like family members, they might be like my closest family members I have. If you don't talk to me for 10 years and all of a sudden think I'll be open to maintaining a relationship with you 10 years later and like forget everything that happened. I'm a completely different person compared to like the child you have in your head. You know, I have like my own thought processes. I grew up in a very autonomy emphasized society. So I'm open to maintaining relationship with my family. I grew up like as an only child, so I very much value family. But that doesn't mean that I'm just going to forget everything that's happened. Or like, that doesn't mean what you did 10 years ago isn't a direct effect of how I am today. Exactly. Growing up, I remember it was great too. I declared my hatred for the color pink. Pink could be a scapegoat. I hated it. And I'm looking back now and realizing how much that perspective has changed instead of being like so against a a color or thinking it's disgusting you kind of realize that all the different colors in the spectrum whether it be shades of a certain color or just in general that's what makes it so beautiful the fact that there's different colors that exist 
there's just so many possibilities and you can use colors in different situations, right? Some look better in a certain situation versus others. So it's like, there's no right or wrong. That makes sense. Yeah. So if I were to apply this analogy to coconuts, we come from a blue area, or like our origins are blue, but we grew up in a yellow area. So we end up being green because we're neither blue nor yellow. And even among green, there's so many variations of green. Like there's neon green, there's olive green, pastel green. So even among green, some greens have more blue, some greens have more yellow, but it's still green and it's not necessarily blue or yellow. So that's how coconuts are basically. We were born with certain values of our family, yet we grew up with different values. And at the same time and accordingly, we're kind of in the middle. So it's not about trying to fit in or be more like one or the other. It's kind of about creating our own box and creating our own little group, like identity. Exactly. Like you've heard of Fifty Shades of Grey. It's Fifty Shades of Green, okay? Fifty Shades of Every Color. Nice. (laughs) But that's, yeah, a nice way to think about that. We're so focused on the little things, like the little fixated on the little details that sometimes we forget to take a step back and just see the big picture. Yeah, we're basically like a speck of dust floating in thin air. Have you seen the movie Horton Hears a Who? I have, but like a very long time ago, but I know there's like a world inside a flower. Yeah. Have you seen Everything Everywhere All at Once? I ha- oh, I love that movie. Right. That's so, so good. I and like, my entire idea of my mind changed <laughs> within those two and a half hours. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, side note, but the girl, what's her name? Joy? She reminded yeah. me so much of Marie. Right! Yes! <laughs> I texted her after. I'm like, hey, I just watched this movie. And I'm like, this girl, she reminds me of you. <laughs> this is a side plug if you haven't yet you should listen to Marion's episode (laughs) because she's really cool (laughs) yeah we have to tie it back (laughs) but yes so yeah yes I also thought about (laughs) (laughs) Marion so homework for y'all you've reached the end of another episode of the Hidden Covenants thanks for listening be sure to check out our Instagram at The Hidden Coconuts for bloopers, more of our wandering thoughts, and a chance to be a guest on our show. We love to discuss and tackle everyday coconut quandaries, so stay tuned, and we'll see you on top of the coconut tree soon. Bye.